Our scripture passage today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. I am, the vi- I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. If you, are my fr- you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and to bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask in the Father's name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to God's word, we need his help, so let us begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the promises you make to us as your people. We thank you that everything you have revealed to Christ, he has told to his disciples, and we have it here before us that we too can be called your friend. Lord, help us to understand. Give us ears to hear. May your spirit illuminate your word to our hearts. May it cause us to bear great fruit. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we're continuing in John's gospel, as we have been now for quite some time. And if you remember, our passage last week ended with this phrase as Jesus and his disciples were in the upper room celebrating the the Last Supper. And he told them about love and obedience, obeying his commandments, loving one another. There's all of this imagery, and he says this, Rise, let us go from here. But then Jesus starts talking again. There's some speculation as to where this interchange takes place, but I don't think it's too complicated, especially if you're familiar with the phrase, a Minnesota goodbye. You know, you go to a friend's house and you eat dinner, and after dinner is done, you're all kind of finishing up your coffee. 
And you say, well, we're going to have to go. And you exchange some pleasantries at the table. And then as you get halfway to the door, you stop and you have another conversation. And then you get to the door and you have a conversation there. And then once the door is opened, you stop and you have another conversation. And then you get out onto the front step and you have a conversation. And you get to your car and you have a conversation. And then you get in your car and you roll down the window. And you have another conversation. And then you wave until you cannot see them anymore. Jesus has ended this supper with his disciples, but he has more to tell them. Whether they are still in the upper room or walking on the way to the Mount of Olives, we are unsure. But it's a continuation of the things that he must tell his disciples. He has given them comfort as they were concerned about him leaving. And he wanted to remind them that it's actually going to be better for them when they when he leaves. But now he wants to prepare them for the thing that's going to come. We'll see in our passage for next week, he tells them about how the world is going to hate them like they hate him. By belonging to Jesus, they are going to suffer. And if they obey the commandments that Jesus has given them, it is going to cause them great hardship And so Jesus, having assured them about his leaving and how it's not final and how the Holy Spirit is going to come and to help them, is now turning to prepare them for suffering. We're going to start with the end of our passage today, uh, this section where Jesus calls his disciples his friends. He says, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you my friends, because servants don't know what the master is planning, right? If you're a servant in a house, if you're an employee, the boss doesn't need to tell you why you need to do the things. He just tells you to do them, right? And a good servant or a good employee will just go and do them, and they know that they don't necessarily need to know why. But Jesus says that's not how we've interacted You're not merely servants. Jesus indeed has the authority to just tell people what to do. After all, he is the divine son of God. But that's not how he cared for his disciples. Instead, he calls them friends, and he shares with them everything that the Father has revealed for them to know. He's telling them what's going to happen, why it's going to happen, how these things work. And oftentimes in the parables and the other gospel accounts, nobody understands the parables, but then Jesus takes his disciples aside and he explains it to them. They are his friends. They get to know the inside scoop. And here he's given us the inside scoop about suffering, about his kingdom, about our source of life. I mentioned the parables, and and this imagery here is very similar to parables. If you were with us last summer, we went through many parables together, and they all have these different characters in them, and each character represents different things, and some of them are more clear than others. And they're all uh, really to give us one central idea, or maybe two ideas, and we don't want to over-extrapolate all of the imagery beyond what Jesus is saying. But this metaphor here, this imagery, this word picture, if you will, it's not exactly a parable. It has the same um, helpful outline for us. 
Jesus introduces to us these characters to explain to us something about his kingdom, to prepare the disciples for the suffering so that they might understand why it's happening, how they can endure it. And he uses this imagery of a vineyard. He says, I am the true vine. Okay, so we're probably not too familiar with vines, right? We're not Napa Valley people. We certainly aren't ancient people who, at the time when Jesus lived, would have been very familiar with vineyards. In fact, on the temple at the time when Jesus was alive, there were these huge ornate vines on the, on the temple when he walked in. This imagery of the vine was closely affiliated with the people of Israel. In fact, several times in the Old Testament, God calls them his vineyard. You can look to Isaiah chapter 5, Ezekiel uh, 18, I believe, Psalm 80. These all talk about a vineyard. Isaiah chapter 5 Uh, talks about how the Lord prepared the ground and planted this vineyard and even put a wine press in the midst of the vineyard that it would go and it would bear fruit and it would just be this place of God's blessing. But every time that a vineyard is brought into picture in the Old Testament, referring to the people of Israel, it's actually always in terms of judgment. Because Isaiah chapter 5 goes on to talk about this vineyard that the Lord had planted, his chosen people. He says, the, Lord of hosts is the, ho- uh, the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. And for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Earlier, he goes on to say, he looked for it to yield grapes, but, when he, but it yielded wild grapes, sour grapes, bad fruit. Instead of justice, bloodshed. Instead of righteousness, an outcry of unrighteousness. The imagery of the people of God, Israel, being the vine. The, the agent through which God is going to work in the world, where his blessings will go through, that they were to bear this fruit. And yet, as we know, they failed time and time again. And so as Jesus brings up this imagery of vineyards and instead calls himself the vine, he's making a bold statement. He's not saying, important to note, that the church or the disciples are the vine. We're not replacing the people of Israel in that way. Jesus is the one who fulfills what Israel was always meant to be. He is the vine, the source of all of God's blessings and work in the world. The true vine, not like the vine of the people before who failed and were judged for their failures, were unable to bear the fruit that God had wanted them to bear. Jesus is the true vine. So we have the character of the vine, Jesus, the true vine, and the vine dresser, his father. We have one vine and we have one knife. 
a vine dresser, of course, their, their job is to cut back, you know, the unnecessary growth on good vines and to cut off the dead vines that, or the branches that are, that are not bearing any fruit. They're going to care for the vine. They're going to make sure it's healthy. I'm not one who's good at gardening. I don't know if you are. I think perhaps one of my reasons for failing to grow things well is I don't know how to prune. Uh, Tara and I, in our first home we owned, had all of these exotic plants. The guy who uh, owned it before us, I think he taught at the university, and it was his experiment to grow cherry trees and peonies and all these different things, Um, and we didn't know how to take care of them. In fact, uh, while the house was vacant, the neighbors would come and cut back the cherry tree because they knew if they didn't, it would be hard for them to harvest. And of course, the previous owner had shared generously of his cherries. But I didn't know how to prune. And if you don't prune things properly, they don't bear much fruit. Or the fruit that they bear might not be any good. A vine dresser, a gardener, the one who knows how to care for their plants the end of the season, cuts it down to the root, takes away all of the things that are unnecessary in order to bring about new growth, more fruit in the next season. This is the role of the Father. But perhaps most in mind here is the goal of bearing fruit. Jesus talks about it over and over again. And it's actually a descriptor of the two types of branches. So we have one vine, one knife, two branches, one goal. Jesus is the vine. The Father holds the knife. There are two types of branches and one goal. Fruit. Jesus wants to tell his disciples how they will bear fruit. The necessity of bearing fruit to be fruitful. As is the case with most parables, it's pretty easy to understand the point Jesus is making in terms of who we ought to be in the parable. We read this and we think, I better not be an unfruitful branch. I want to be the fruitful branch. Right? Easy answer. Jesus says, be fruitful branch. Goodbye. Right? But it's, also very difficult to preach on such a passage that's so plain to us. But I think as I look at this passage and I look at Jesus' commandments to abide in him and abide in his love and to bear fruit and to be this fruitful branch, my immediate response is to look at my life and myself and consider the fruit that God has borne in my life, and to be concerned. As I evaluate the things uh, that God is doing in my life, the the fruit that I'm bearing, perhaps you read this passage and you think fruit means uh, conversions. That uh, what Jesus wants is people to go out and to make converts. Now, there are some people that believe that's what this passage teaches, but I think there's something far more applicable than merely conversion of people to Christ. 
It is actually relating to everything that God is doing in and through his disciples. It is the growth of holiness, the growth of love, the growth of dependence on the vine. And so if your assessment of your life is like the assessment I have of my life, which is, I don't know if I'm being fruitful enough, it brings us to the question, how do we bear fruit? And that is what Jesus is answering for his disciples in this passage. Jesus is preparing his disciples for the coming suffering. The coming pain. There are two types of branches, and the coming pain will reveal the nature of what those branches are truly like. If you think of this imagery of pruning, of cutting back what is not fruitful, How does that happen in the life of a believer or an unbelieving person? How is God pruning us? How ought we to see suffering? I think what Jesus is preparing his disciples for here is that their life is going to be extremely difficult in many ways and that it is through these difficult circumstances that they are being pruned that they are having the unnecessary sprouts off of their branch cut off. And that is going to cause them to be more and more dependent on the vine. It is a painful process, right? There's, there's one knife that will come for the unfruitful branch and for the fruitful branch. There is no category of branch here that will not experience severe pain. Pruning seems like a bad idea to cut off other branches that seem like they they could turn into something good, but instead are removed so that the good branch would continue to bear fruit, that the nutrients, that the, the things that come from the vine would go directly to the fruit. This is why the Apostle Paul can say in Romans chapter 5, We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. We rejoice in our sufferings, How can we rejoice in our sufferings? Well, that's only possible when we understand that it is God who is at work in and through the sufferings in our lives. That we might be fruitful. That we might have endurance and character and have hope. Tim Keller put it this way, Suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. If suffering has no purpose, 
If suffering is being done apart from God, it is unbearable. Similar phrase uh, we see in James chapter 1. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It is through trials, it is through suffering, that God is at work shaping his branches, causing them to grow in character, to produce steadfastness, that we may be perfect and complete. This is what pruning looks like. And this is what Jesus is preparing his disciples for, that when they suffer, that when they have trials before them, they can rejoice and have joy. Know that it is a means through which God is building them up, refining them. And of course, the pruner and his knife takes away dead branches, those who are unfruitful, those who are not truly connected to the vine, who have not received the nutrients from the vine to bear fruit. And really, we have this imagery of two branches that I want us to focus on for a moment. Two branches the fruitful and the unfruitful. Both seem to be identified with Jesus, right? You wouldn't say that this branch uh, was on the vine and now it's been cut off and is being burned if it didn't have some relation to the vine. There is a reality that many people can have some sort of outward connection to Jesus, then ultimately be deemed unfruitful. We can participate in the outward administration of God's work in the world. You can't get too far away here from thinking even just back to Judas, the man who was seated in Jesus' place of honor at this Last Supper. Every possible outward way you would think that Judas was a true disciple. And yet he proved to be unfruitful. There's a great temptation to be content with outward administration of God's work in the world. We can do many things. This this passage here, Jesus says, you can do nothing without me. Nothing. Of course, we know that that's a bit Hyperbolic, right? Because we can do lots of things without Jesus. In fact, we can preach sermons without Jesus. We can come to church without Jesus. We can baptize people without Jesus. We can administer his supper and participate in it without Jesus. We can read the Bible without Jesus. But what he's saying is we can have no spiritual life without him. 
He is calling us not to some mere external participation in these things. That we're just hanging out by the vine, but that we ought to be abiding in it. Drawing our life from it. Oftentimes we talk about the church, uh, a true church. I don't know if you've ever heard this uh, explanation. It has three marks. Uh, The preaching of the word, the right preaching of the word, the the right administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. Some sort of sense in which who's in and who's out. Okay, those are are all good things. I, I don't think that's a bad summary of the marks of the church. But we can do all of those things without Christ. What about prayer? What about love? This is what Jesus is calling us to in this passage. Asking the Father, abiding in his love, abiding in the vine, abiding in him as the source of all of our spiritual strength and overflowing in love for one another. We often also talk about the ordinary means of grace. It's very similar to our other list. The preaching of the word. The administration of the sacraments. Participating in these means, these appointed means through which God communicates his blessings to us. Sometimes we include prayer. We'll add that in as a way in which God communicates his grace to us. But do we really believe that? Do we see these as the things that we must go to to draw life? Do we draw life from them? Interestingly, this ordinary means of grace is pulled from Acts chapter 2. It says that the disciples gathered together on the Lord's Day for the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and prayers, the love for one another that Jesus has commanded here again and again, even in our passage today. Jesus is calling us really to two things in this passage, to abide and to bear fruit. And you can't do one without the other or the other without the one. Those who abide will bear fruit. Those who bear fruit are abiding. What does abiding mean? We talk about prayer. How can we abide in Christ if we lead prayerless lives? How can we abide in his word? I just read an interesting uh, updated study about our current context in America. Now, this isn't the church. This is the population as a whole. Nine percent of people surveyed read the Bible every day. 9%. 3% 9%. 3% four more times a week. 10% several times a week. 9% once a week. 9% once a month. 8% two or three times a year. 7% once or twice a year. 34% never read the Bible. Okay? Maybe not shocking. 9% of the people read the Bible every day. We can't help but be influenced by the culture around us. 
the, the self-independence that we feel, the ability to be able to bear fruit on our own. The reason we don't pray, the reason I don't pray, the reason I don't read the Bible the way I ought to, it's because I've bought into the lie that there's life available somewhere else. And Jesus is being very clear here that there is no other way. There is no other source of life. There is nothing else that will sustain you, particularly as you are being pruned through suffering and trials. And at the heart of all of this discourse with his disciples is love. How can we love one another when we have not been abiding in his love? Difficult questions for me to consider for myself, let alone us as a church. Yet God is pruning us, is he not? This is a word from Christ to us, and it is the means through which he is calling us to abide in him. To unplug our branch from the other things that we seek life from, and instead to be plugged back into his word and his love To go to him in prayer knowing that that is the source of our abiding in him. We can hear words like these from Jesus and we can choose to ignore it. Go on living prayerless, wordless, loveless lives and that would be far easier for us. It is far easier for me to go back to the things where I find affirmation and life. Or we can turn to him in repentance, recognizing that he's calling us to a life of abiding in him and in his love and in his word and dependence in prayer. Experiencing the love that he lavishes on his people. You see, we don't have to work to bear fruit. The fruit on the branch is the work of the vine. The branch doesn't bear fruit and then say, look how great I did this. Jesus is clear here. Branches don't bear fruit apart from the vine. The fruit that is born in your lives as we abide in Christ and in his word and in his love and with love for one another is Christ's fruit. If we abide in him, if we draw our life from him, it will bear fruit in us. It will cause us to grow in character and in holiness and in greater dependence upon him. C.S. Lewis put it this way, If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to it, even into it. The thing that has them. 
God has provided us a means through which we can be fully engrafted into his life. We must be grafted into it. We must live in it, be near to it. And this work of pruning in our lives, it may feel like even death itself to give up the things that God is cutting away. As one person has often said, you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. The pruning back to the vine at the end of the season leaves us nothing but the vine, nothing to look at, no more fruit out there, no more excellence in our own branch, but we are there and united to Christ, and it is through him again that we will emerge and bear more fruit. As we experience pain and suffering in our life, as we experience the convicting word of God in our lives, it ought to cause us to go back to the vine, to grow in our dependence on it, knowing it is the only hope we have. This is the life he has called us to, not to go and try harder to bear more fruit. But when his spirit has united us to him, the fruit of the spirit, his love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, we cannot achieve these in our own strength. We cannot achieve holiness and salvation in our own strength. We must be dependent on the vine. What must be pruned in our lives? Where is the Father cutting us back? Where are we resisting his loving discipline in our lives? Where have we failed to abide? May God give us the grace to return to him. Even as we wither on the vine, fruitless, prayerless, loveless, let us return and be nourished May his spirit do that work in our hearts. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that Christ is the true vine who can give us life. Lord, we confess our prayerlessness, our wordlessness, our lovelessness as individuals, as a church, as the church in our nation and around the world, Lord. Help us to abide in the vine. Help us to be living lives of true dependence on your spirit. Help us to submit to the pruning work you're doing in our lives and in our hearts. That we might become more fruitful. And that through that fruit you would be glorified. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.